Hello and welcome to a Carrot Can Sue podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Matthew Antonucci and we'll be discussing using electrostimulation in neurological rehabilitation. If you would like to learn modern clinical applications to help more patients in your practice, visit CarrotInstitute.com. Hello and welcome to a Carrot Soup podcast. My name is Dr. Freddie Garcia, and today we are once again joined by Dr. Matthew Antonucci. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Garcia. Good to be back. Awesome. Hey, so we are having you back uh, for the second time because there was a lot of requests for a very specific topic, and you are my go-to resource for learning about this since you, since we. Uh, your team and you do it a lot at Plasticity Brain Centers in Orlando. So I really appreciate you coming back on the show. We're, we're going to be discussing utilizing electric stimulation and neurological rehabilitation. So are you ready for that? I am so ready for this. All right. Awesome. Um, this has been interesting because maybe, I don't even know how many years ago, I, I, have, I haven't even seen this being performed in the last... Um, I can't even put my finger on it, maybe four or five years. And this is just me being exposed to it. But uh, let's say maybe 10 years ago, I didn't see it that that much. And now it's becoming more common. So there are those clinicians that are applying clinical neuroscience to their patients who are now utilizing electrical stimulations. And I see all different sorts, different sites of the body that they're applying electrical stimulations to. I'm assuming that there's different targets. Um, but... What are, what are these types of therapies that they're trying to apply to their patients? All, I mean, the only thing I see in common is that they're electrical stimulations, but there's many different types being used. What, is, what are they really trying to achieve? What's going on with this? Well, there's really two different types of electrical stimulation. There's invasive electrical stimulation, such as deep brain stimulators, where they implant these electrodes in your brain to stimulate different sites of the brain. And there's non-invasive electric stimulation or non-invasive neuromodulation, as it's called in the research. So when we start looking at individuals in chiropractic neurology and functional neurology, even in some types of rehab, by and large, we utilize non-invasive neuromodulation. So that's just a big umbrella term that covers everything that falls under the electric stimulation category that's not breaking the skin or not having to do a, a procedure to implement. You know, uh, Dr. Carrick, I think, was doing some like some of that uh deeper brain magnetic stimulations. I, I think he was up at Harvard working with a team on one of those units. Some of those units can be incredibly expensive. So it's, it's fascinating to even, even hear about the, the possibilities of that stuff. Yeah, well, that's the transcranial magnetic stimulation. So that's, once again, falls under the umbrella of non-invasive neuromodulation. And there's a whole spectrum of things that people are implying in their practice right now from less common to more common. So it's obviously TMS being a little less common because you said it's a little bit price prohibitive, uh, cost prohibitive. It's an expensive unit. Um, and the research on it is acc accumulating and it's getting bigger and bigger, um, but mostly not for neurological rehabilitation, more for psychiatric medicine, for depression, anxiety, things like that. And I have a feeling it's probably where that's where the research is at, at this point. So we'll, we'll see where that goes in the future. And you mentioned the least, you know, some are less common, some are more common. What are the more common ones, Dr. Antonucci? Well, the more common ones, I would probably say the most common are the ones that have been used since the, the early 60s, which are in physical types of therapies, like some things like TENS, like transcranial electric nerve stimulation, Russian stimulation, interferential, pre-mod, all of those different more um, physical types of nerve stimulation, if you will. And then a little bit more common than that are 
for rehabilitation at least. Actually, let's pause there. So there's that's the most common. Next common would probably be more diagnostic, where we're you know, neurophysiologists are looking at using electric nerve stimulation to figure out the integrity of a nerve and also and figure out the integrity of a nerve pathway from maybe the hand to the brain or, or vice versa. And that's more like uh, the EMG, the needle EMGs, the SSCPs, those types of tests? Yeah, like nerve conduction velocity studies, ex- exactly. And then I would probably say the most common that individuals in functional neurology are using has a couple of different names. We call them SSEPs, uh, somatosensory evoked potentials, but as I think you were just talking about, that's more of an electric diagnostic test. Right, that's how I was trained on it. So that's what's always been interesting to me about how we're using uh, what to me is classically a diagnostic piece of equipment and test, and we're using it therapeutically for neurological rehabilitation. So I definitely want to dive into that. Yeah, well, it makes complete sense. When we do these SSEPs, a somatosensory evoked potential, what it really means is we're stimulating something in the periphery, mm-hmm. a somatosensory stimulus, and we're looking to see how that electricity evokes a nerve potential that travels to the brain. So with an SSCP, you stimulate a peripheral nerve and you measure its impact above the parietal cortex. So it makes kind of sense if electricity is going from a distal extremity to the parietal cortex and we're measuring it there, that there's a connection being made. And we know that electricity in nerves creates uh, RNA synthesis, protein synthesis, kinase activation, and ultimately plasticity and long-term potentiation. That's the basis of it. So it would make sense that if you do a peripheral stimulus, you can generate central integration and central plasticity. Hmm. So I guess what's different from the those who apply clinical neuroscience or, you know, some people call them functional neurologists is they're looking at that central consequence. They're probably trying to establish some sort of positive plasticity using what, using this electrical stimulation. Yeah, exactly. And there's studies on this and what they're actually calling it in the studies is not a, a, an SSEP. They're calling it a repetitive peripheral somatosensory stimulus, RPSS. That's the procedure. Repetitive meaning goes over and over again. Peripheral meaning it's not central. It's, it's somewhere in the body. And then the somatosensory stimulus. And what they're showing is that based on the conditions of the brain, uh, the integrity of the brain, doing these peripheral stimulus can actually create efficiency in the supplementary motor cortex and the motor cortex so you can generate better motor unit potentials or action potentials coming from the brain to the muscles. So that's kind of the basis of what we're doing. Interesting. Hey, so you were, and pardon my interruption, you were listing uh, the different types of electrical stimulations. You mentioned SSCP, but I know there's a few more. Can you keep going? Yeah, there's, well, I guess there there are. There's like galvanic stimulation. There's uh, a whole bunch of others people are, are arp waves and, and different things like that but i think what we really need to do is we need to not necessarily look at all the products that are offered in electric stimulation but we need to understand what electric stimulation is itself so i think that's the important thing it's almost like when you're looking at nutritional advice you, mm-hmm. you can either memorize supplements and prescribe supplements or you can understand the ingredients and how they individually act on the system and then create the best ingredients or the best supplement for your individual patient. So it's really un- important to understand how that yeah, electrical stimulus works. And that makes perfect sense. It's like the difference between understanding only a brand versus understanding what you're actually giving to people, right? You need to understand, uh, you know, at a technical level, what these things do. That way you can make a better recommendation. So I'm game for that. Is that something you can uh, explain to us? Yeah, absolutely. We can right. definitely do that. I mean, it just, it's just an, understanding electricity. So when you start looking at electricity, all it is is an ion exchange. You've got positive ions and you've got negative ions. So, and opposites attract, like ions uh, repel each other. So 
basically we know that our nerves have different ionic gradients and when you introduce electricity you change that ionic gradient and all of a sudden a nerve becomes active but there are other things that we need to consider it's not just all electricity is created equal because the different technologies that come in uh, change the characteristics of the electricity electricity is electricity but and you can't patent electricity you can't trademark electricity you can't do anything like that but what you can do is you can create different products based upon how you utilize that electricity and if you understand the variables you know such as impedance if we start looking at the types of currents if we start looking at the classifications the waveforms the intensities the phases those are all things that are super important when prescribing a therapy hmm. um I guess my next type of question is, what type of ele- what type of electrical therapies are those? Well, I mean, I guess how do you know which type of electrical stimulation you apply to who? I mean, you, so yeah, and that's it, it makes you, more it, questions, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, going, exactly. there's so many questions I have to figure out here. Yeah, well, the first thing you want to consider is what is the tissue type you're trying to affect, because different tissues react differently to electricity, especially mm. when you start looking at the impedance of tissue. So impedance. It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys remember back to like physics class, like Ohm's law, right? Yeah. So we start this looking is, at... This is what it, I feel we're doing right now. This is totally yeah. a throwback to physics. Yeah, absolutely. You need to understand if the more impedance, the, impedance, the less electricity or less uh, current will flow through a tissue. Mm-hmm. Sure. So there's different types of tissues that have different impedances. Anything that has more water content to it is going to have a lower impedance. It means it's going to conduct electricity a lot better. Things that have less water in it are not going to connect as well, conduct as well. So looking at bone, looking at tendons, looking at fat. Those are things that have low water content and are poor conductors of electricity. Things that have high water content, such as the deep layers of the skin, nerves, muscles, those are really good at conducting electricity. And that's one of the reasons why when we do peripheral somatosensory stimulations, we use a conductivity gel. We use some sort of an ionic fluid that'll take that electricity and deliver it through the skin more effectively so we get the maximum amount. So if you understand the impedance, impedance, then you need to then consider, well, what my target tissue is, what's the impedance of that target tissue, and then you select what type of current you want to use because there's different kind of like um, strengths of current and characteristics of current. So, And that's where we have looking at direct current versus alternating current, uh, and that's where you look at the difference between galvanic stimulation and most other types of nerve stimulators. Hmm. So... So how do you know which one's going to be appropriate? You're looking at the, the tissue you're actually trying to affect. Are there any other yep. factors that you kind of take into account for this? Yeah, absolutely. So when we start looking at, well, let's just focus less on maybe muscle and tendons and blood flow, because those are all things that you can affect with electrical stimulation. Let's, do, let's talk about what we're here to talk about is nerve aspects. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at nerves and you're trying to figure out how you want to affect a nerve, there's a there's a couple more common types of electric stimulation. Let's talk about TENS, which is TENS is the most common. And, sure. and when you when you look at TENS, TENS stands for transcutaneous electric nerve stimulation. Well, break the word apart, isn't every type of nerve stimulation transcutaneous electric? So TENS is really a bad name, but we'll just take what the, uh, I guess, the perception of what is TENS. This is when you apply nerve stimulation to a nerve to decrease pain or, or as an analgesic. Um, when you look at TENS, TENS has a very specific type of waveform, meaning that the device that delivers the electricity 
uh, is very, very different. It's a high frequency, usually like lots of pulses per second. And there's a some different type of waveform. It's actually called an asymmetric biphasic waveform. So meaning that it depolarizes the nerve differently than it hyperpolarizes the nerve. So you're going to create a different type of action potential and a different type of restoration of that action potential. So the point of TENS units are to decrease pain, to decrease perception, and really necessarily something that you want to do just only in an acute phase. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking at other types. You've got symmetrical biphasic, which is kind of like the same thing as TENS, but it's symmetrical. So this is going to equally depolarize a nerve and equally hyperpolarize, repolarize the nerve. So you have on, off, on, off, on, off, which is more used for different types of motor activities, which is what we use in different types of uh, units that we, I mean, I'm not gonna talk about any brand names right now, but you know, different types of electrodiagnostic technology are more of these biphasic symmetrical because it's a nice clean waveform, turns the nerve on, turns the nerve off so you can measure it. So those are things that we need to look at is the waveform. And we can definitely talk more about this because there's a whole lot here. And then I think one other variable that I think is really important to understand um, is the intensities, right? So intensity is really, really important. And uh, maybe I'll just stop there for a second, see if there's anything that's kind of brewing in your mind because I can well, talk about this all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned intensity, and this is one of those things that I think fascinates me. I just want to take a, a small detour, but I... So is this one of those things that, I, I mean, I see in the clinical setting, I see the clinicians applying this to their patients and they're being very, very carefully monitored. Um, and I, you know, the care consumer gets emails and questions all day long and, and people ask about these therapies and they're saying, hey, is this something I should be doing? And my canned response has always been, no, no, you should be doing this with a trained clinician. But I think people, because it is electrical stimulation, you can kind of buy some of these units from, you know, websites, eBay, you know, anywhere with the way the world is in e-commerce. Is this type of thing where somebody should be doing it with a clinician or is it safe to do at home? Or I guess the question is, how safe is this? Can you speak to that? I think safety is is not really too much of an issue. When you start looking at utilizing electric therapy, uh, there's a couple things that are, are contraindicated. Uh, anything during pregnancy, except for kind of like labor control, uh, pain for during labor. Anybody with a pacemaker, you need to stay far away from the pacemaker. Uh, you want to stay away from cancerous tumors because you've got the risk of metastasis. Um, you're going to look at embolisms. Uh, if somebody has like a thrombophobitis or something like that, you want to don't go anywhere near an embolus. Um, stay away from really important areas of the body, like your carotid sinus. You don't want to do any electric therapy up on the neck there because that can cause arrhythmias and you know, the V-fib, things like that. So other than that, it's relatively safe um, as long as it's used responsibly. So, and that kind of goes along to kind of talking a little bit about the equipment that's associated with it. As a clinician, you should always use a piece of equipment that plugs into a wall. Okay, so it's important that you plug into the wall, not battery-operated devices. And the reason being is because you're going to get a clean power signal out of a wall, and it's repetitious, and it's reliable. When you start looking at battery-operated devices, a lot of times the, the low uh, st sensory, st the low intensity stimulus are pretty good, but as you start ramping up the intensity, you start getting a more of a, for lack of a better term, a fuzzy neurological signal, 
and you also don't have a linear progression of the intensity. So when we start looking at intensity, it's important to talk about what does intensity have to do with neurophysiology? Well, low intensity, you've got, you've got really four different categories of intensity. You've got subsensory, mm-hmm. meaning you don't feel it. And this is things like pulse magnetic frequencies, um, you know, from your cell phone, from different types of clinical tools that deliver pulse magnetic frequencies. Those are subsensory. You don't feel them, but they still have a physiological effect. Mm-hmm. You've got sensory stimulus, which is kind of like when you just feel like that tickling or tingling or pins and needles and those are stimulating those a beta nerve fibers uh so those are specifically sensory those are specifically through your phalanocortical i'm sorry your uh spinal thalamic pathways then you start in well spinal thalamic and the sensory pathways and also some of the the dorsal column pathways things like that then you get the motor potentials when you have the intensity increase so sensory is before you start seeing a muscle contract Mm-hmm. When you got a motor, you're activating completely different types of fibers. You've got those A-alpha fibers. So, and then you have noxious stimulus, which are going to activate A-delta and C-fibers. So intensity really makes a difference on what you're trying to target. So, for example, if you're using a battery-operated device and you're trying to help somebody with muscle contraction, motor operation, those may not do the job. So that's why we rely upon the technology that's tried and true from the, the electrodiagnostic world, because if it's good enough for diagnostic um, data, then it's definitely good enough for therapeutics uh, reuse. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense because you also, I mean, because you want that consistency, right? And the battery, no matter what, is always going to be changing consistency, no matter probably how hard they try to maintain the consistent, but you're changing the amount of power the unit has because of the nature of a battery. So I think exactly. you'd want to kind of control those variables if you want to see if a particular treatment has a, a good level of eff- efficacy in your practice. Absolutely. So, I mean, those are just some things to consider, which is the, uh, the, the type of stimulus and the intensity. And then we also, you kind of alluded to people are doing this in different places. So I'm sure everybody wants to know, well, why would somebody stimulate a nerve in a certain place yeah well can i can i tell you what i've seen and maybe you can kind of let us know a little bit about each one if you have the time sure absolutely yeah so different things that i think we've all seen in uh clinical neuroscience is i've seen uh place doctors apply electrical stimulation near the uh near the eye kind of like that superorbital notch i've seen it happen near the ear i've seen it happen on the tongue um, I've seen uh, they're doing some nerve stimulations in the upper extremities, like the median nerve. And I've also seen in the lower extremity. And in the lower extremity, it fascinates me because I've seen people do it in a specific pattern. And, and they call it the gate, um, the gate protocol. Do you, is that something you could speak to as well maybe later in this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if, if I always try to make things nice and simple. If mm-hmm. you're doing electric nerve stimulation or somatosensory stimulus, on the body, it obviously matters where you're on the body you're doing it. Of and it, ma- it matters because different parts of our body are represented in different areas of our brain. And different areas of our brain integrate with other areas of the brain. So we should, we should always approach a patient with an intention. So our intention is to do X. And how do we get there? So when you start looking at doing uh, stimulation on the face or the tongue, We've got the trigeminal nerve that is very widely distributed throughout the face, and it actually is the largest nucleus in our brainstem, which goes all the way from our midbrain all the way down to our spinal cord. So it's got a big real estate in mm-hmm. our brain. 
Sure does. And it's really, and it's really, really important for a lot of things that we do to survive, to eat, to chew, to speak. You know, those are things that, and to smile and to frown, to be able to feel the expression on your face, um, which is really, really important. So it's got real big real estate in your brain. So doing stimulation on the face integrates into the brainstem. And there are some people up in the University of Wisconsin are doing a whole lot of research on tongue stimulation and how it integrates into different nuclei in your brainstem and how it integrates in different parts of our brain, like our thalamus and our cortex and changes all sorts of other different types of physiology, such as the ability to detect motion in space, the ability to detect your motion in space, just from stimulating a facial nerve. There's also a lot of research that shows when you do that V1 or that superorbital notch that you're talking about, mm -hmm. it has a really large representation for things like head pain and headache. So you can do V1 or superorbital stimulation to help individuals with headaches. Um, there's other aspects of our body that are a little bit more relative to different parts of our brain, such as median nerve stimulation. And we're not the first to discover this because you look at some of those bracelets that people use when they go on cruise ships to get prevent seasickness. Mm -hmm. Those things stimulate the median nerve, not with electricity, but with pressure. And when we do stimulation on the wrist, we can largely affect the cerebellum. Uh, and we can also affect the motor cortex uh, represented in that cerebellum. And, and an interesting study is actually shows this, and this is important for us as clinical neuroscience experts to understand is that when we do these different types of nerve stimulations, we have to understand how it integrates in the brain. And we do this by reading research. And there were some papers that were just published not too, too long ago that showed individuals with cerebellar strokes, when you have a stroke in your cerebellum and we do median nerve stimulation, it does not change the integration of the motor evoked unit potentials from TMS. Um, if you have a cerebellar lesion. So that's to say, if you have a cerebellar problem, you can do R uh, RPSS on the median nerve and you're not, not gonna have any effect. You mm. might have a sensory effect because the person feels it, but you're not going to have a motor effect, which is the importance of that cerebellar integration. So what this does in my mind, it says, okay, well, obviously a lot of us uh, are seeing more functional types of problems, people that have decreased integrity and in the uh, cellular networks of their cerebellum, not necessarily stroke where it's dead. Um, so maybe that suggests to me is that if you're going to do uh, a median nerve stimulation on somebody that has a cerebellar lesion, you may want to do some sort of a biomechanical joint position movement parameter before doing the somatosensory stimulus. But if the person has an intact cerebellum and you're trying to target more of the parietal cortex with this uh, supplementary motor cortex in the sensory area of our brain, you may want to do the RPSS prior to doing movements because it's going to prime that motor cortex to have that motor movement be more efficient and de develop plasticity. So there's complexity here. It's, and we started off by saying electricity is simple. It's an exchange of ions. But if you understand neurophysiology and you understand the tools that you're using, we can really create some really great therapies utilizing a very simple type of, of technology and physics. Well, 
Dr. Antonucci, I, I love what you said because really what you're, what you're speaking to is, listen, here's a tool and there's many different ways to apply it, but ultimately you have to really understand what you're doing. And there's times based off the rest of your physical and neurological examination where this tool may be appropriate and other times where it may not be appropriate, but it's really dependent on a more complete clinical picture. So uh, sometimes uh, topics like this uh, make me a little nervous because I feel like people may say, hey, let let me just, you know, oh, X, A does B. Let me do this because it's that simple. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's, uh, there's nuances to this. Yeah, and that's kind of like what I always talk about. It's like difference between simple and easy, right? It's easy, but it's not simple by any means. It's very complex. Right, interesting. Well, let's, can we talk about some of those targets? Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go top down. So when I see people doing it by the eye, that superorbital notch, what is the what are what is their potential target? Uh, you're looking at your the tissue is the the first branch of the trigeminal nerve, and mm-hmm. you're looking at trigeminal nerve integration in the brainstem, and you're looking at the trigeminal uh, pathways that go up to the brain into the the sensory cortex. That's going to be your major one. And then also from that trigeminal nucleus, we have branches off into the cerebellum. We have branches into the vestibular nucleus. So the main pathway is that sensory pathway that is face, trigeminal cortex, parietal cortex through the thalamus. Um, And then you've got these little supplementary branch offs that go into cerebellum, uh, vestibular nuclei, and even nuclei that perceive uh, movement of the environment. And the same thing happens with all three of those branches. The difference being is that uh, when we start looking at the tongue, the hypoglossal nucleus, uh, it shares some real estate with some eye stability mechanisms and balance mechanisms that the face doesn't. And and that eye stability mechanism, can you remind me of that name again? Uh, The eye stability mechanism for gaze holding, you mean? Yes. Uh, It's the one that's lower in the the, uh, brainstem. The nucleus prepositus hypoglossus. Thank you. I don't know. That's That's that lateral gaze stability center. All right, excellent. And that and that's that core. I've actually seen that application by Dr. Carrick performed many times, um, but it took me a while to kind of understand what that was. But for whatever reason, I was when I'm reading all the textbooks, I always see the all the uh, abbreviations and the letters, and I eventually figure out what the words stand for. <laughs> yeah, and then and Dr. Garcia also one thing I maybe forgot to mention is when we start looking at the trigeminal uh, trigeminal nucleus. Mm-hmm. Um, the different aspects of uh, integration from the V1, V2, and V3 have different integrations in the brainstem. Uh, so what we need to do is we need to look at how those integrate. Well, some integrate more uh, caudally, some integrate more rostrally, and I think that's probably a topic for uh, a longer discussion, uh, but that's something that's also important to know. Great. Um, let's keep going now. So you kind of did some of the ones in the face and the tongue. Um, I, I think I kind of even gleaned why why somebody would do the upper extremity. So I see median nerve is another common one. Can you speak to that? Yeah, median nerve, kind of we talked a little bit about it before. Median nerve is one of the more larger nerves. It's a lot, it uh, provides us with control of our hands. Uh, it controls a lot of more of the flexor muscles of the hands, which are a larger, more dominant group than the extensor muscles in our hands. So when we stimulate median nerves, we start looking at a large representation in the hand area of our brain which can help us with hand-eye coordination, which can help us with dexterity, which can help us with uh, the awareness of our body parts. Um, And we also, once again, are looking at more median um, 
nerve stimulation integration into the thalamus, integrated into the parietal cortex, and we also have those offshoots to the hand portion of our cerebellum. So and this is more the interposed nucleus, more in the, the midline uh, nucleus, or I'm sorry, not the midline, the intermediate nucleus, rather. Super. All right, let's go down to the lower extremity. So I've seen a couple different places in the lower extremities, and then, then there's that, uh, the gate protocol that people mention from time to time. Can you, can you shed some light on those aspects? Yeah, well, the gate protocol, when we start looking at that, what that was, that was kind of invented, if you will, by Dr. Carrick. Um, and when we start thinking about how that came about, it's, it's realistically that we know that the brain has a summative effect when we start looking at, um, at nerve integration. So it's really like a math equation. One plus one plus one uh, plus one is four, right? So when we start looking at the sequence of gate, what the gate protocol is, it's designed to uh, allow us to kind of mimic what you would feel if you were walking by stimulating those nerves. So, and there's a very specific sequence that Dr. Carrick has kind of talked to us about, but then what we also do is on top of those gate mechanisms, we may also want to elicit supplementary mechanisms with a head turn or with an optokinetic stimulus or contraction, isometric contractions or figure of eights of an upper extremity that would facilitate the integration there. So kind of when you go through the gait cycle, you've got hip flexion, leg extension, push off on the opposite leg, uh, swing through phase. So when we start looking at those, there's obviously very specific muscles that coordinate that movement. And the gait protocol is just designed to make the brain aware of those muscle movements that can kind of synapse both in the spinal cord for our gait mechanisms in the spinal cord and our reticular formation as well as in the areas of the brain that perceive where those muscles are in space and the cerebellum. So what, what is that pattern specifically that somebody would do if they were doing gait protocol? Well, it, it, there isn't a pattern. I mean, that's the thing is it, you have to figure out what's the individual problem with that patient. Do they have a problem with the push-off phase? Do they have a problem with the swing phase? Do they have a problem with the hip flexion? Do they have a problem with the knee extension? So uh, based upon what that patient's kind of manifesting or what that patient's presenting to you, um, you have to be able to adopt it. And sometimes we do different types of gate protocols where it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. We may do uh, an extension of a knee with the flexion of the opposite knee uh, just to facilitate different things. But I think since Dr. Carrick is the one that kind of built that and, and, and kind of created that whole thing he should probably talk more about that yeah you know what i'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to finally get him get him on the show and and uh talk about that but uh since since sir, the pattern is individual can you uh remind us of the sites that people commonly use when doing these electrical stimulations for uh you know you know for for the gate protocol or any of the lower extremity um aspects yeah, we usually do, um, and the, we can do the popliteal fossa, we could do over the peroneal, common peroneal nerve, over the fibular head, we could do uh, down for the tibial nerve behind the medial malleolus, mm -hmm. we can do superficial peroneal nerve on the lateral aspect of the foot. Um, those are kind of more of the bigger ones. Um, you could do in the hamstring if you really needed to hit like a large portion of the tibial nerve. But once again, we have to consider the first one of the first things we talked about is impedance. Um, if the nerve is closer to the surface, you're going to be able to get more out of that nerve. If there's mm -hmm. more fat between the surface of the skin and the nerve, you're going to have to turn the intensity up and it becomes uncomfortable. So those are all things you have to consider when when doing these types of therapies. If somebody's a little kid, you know, a kid that uh, 
maybe had a, a cerebral palsy or an anoxic brain injury, it's really easy to do some of these stimulations because there's not a whole lot of um, tissue between your stimulator and the nerve. But if you have someone uh, that's maybe a, a, a little bit larger, maybe somebody with uh, a thyroid condition that has some, some pretibial edema and, and different things like that, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, Dr. Antonucci, I'm going I'm to ask you one more question because we actually covered a lot of ground. And, and I think you're right. We, we probably could talk about this for several days because there's so much that we can go into. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on where do you see this going in the future for the clinician, the modern clinician who's using uh, electrical stimulations and neurological rehabilitation? Where do you see this going? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question for a second? My, my broke up for a second. There. No, it's a, yeah. So what I was asking is I wanted to get your opinion on where do you see um, electric, using electrical stimulation and neurological rehab going in the future? Um, because I, to me, this is kind of new, and, uh, and I see this developing. So I'm kind of want to get your thoughts, or, and it's just an opinion on where you see this going in the next, you know, five, eight years. What do you think is going to be happening? You know, I think we are on the trajectory of where it's going. And, and I would say that it's because I don't think as many people are doing what we're doing with electric nerve stimulation. So I think that what we're going to find is that electric nerve stimulation is going to go from a passive modality to an active modality. Uh, we're going to start seeing that uh, people are going to be doing different types of applications with electric nerve stimulation because even research now is starting to show that when we have a synergistic effect of the peripheral stimulation with a central activation of those target tissues, that there's a better central plasticity that's realized. Um, I think that's going to be the first. And I think we're going to start seeing some more technologies come out uh, with a little bit more evidence to support it, more applications such as TMS, um, direct current stimulation, transcranial stimulation, things like that. Um, and I think that eventually I think what we'll probably end up seeing is some integration with electric nerve stimulation with virtual reality or augmented reality. I think that's going to be something that's going to be in the future, but who knows? I mean, I, if I could predict the future, there's, I'd be in a different position now than I am. Uh, so, um, I can't really say. Oh, I just, I just wanted your opinion because I know you're very cutting edge and I also <laughs> know that plasticity in Orlando leverages a lot of very modern technology. So, uh, I know you pay attention to that stuff because you guys are, uh, you know, uh, leading the pack there. So that's great. Well, Dr. Antonucci, thank you very, very much time. I took more time than I thought I was going to take today. But like you said, there's a lot we could talk about. I appreciate your expertise in the topic. Um, If Dr. Antonucci, if somebody wanted to find you or learn more about you, where can they find you? Um, You can find me a couple of different places. Obviously, you kind of said a little earlier in the day, I'm at Plasticity Brain Centers. and, And by night, I'm kind of helping the Carrick Institute out with different types of classes and teaching on the weekends. Um, so plasticitybraincenters.com for the clinical side of things, carrickinstitute.com for education. And then if you want to learn a little bit more about me, there's drantonucci.com. So that has a little bit about me, my interests, my hobbies. It kind of talks about where I'm teaching for the Carrick Institute and other organizations such as state associations. So um, those are probably the three best places. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again, Dr. Nucci. Always appreciate you sharing with us. Um, I'm going to see. I'm going to see how everybody feels about this uh, this topic podcast, and if we have anything more about this, again, we'll we'll bring you on and maybe cover a specific subsection because I think you're right. This is we could talk about this for days, but I, I found that absolutely fascinating. So again, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, and please let me know if there's anything else that uh, listeners want to to learn a little bit about. I'm happy to to voice my experience and my opinion for people that will listen. Excellent. All right. Thank you again and have a great day. Goodbye, my friend. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.
If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on careinstitute.com.